So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9 this morning, starting in verse 1. If you want to open there in your Bibles, I am going to read that. I will have it up on the screens as well, and you can follow along there. So it says this. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given authority to such men. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then let's begin to unpack this. Father God, we... (laughs) are going to see, I pray we're going to see this morning, uh, see Jesus' authority once again on full display. We've seen his authority over nature. We've seen his authority over the demonic and and spiritual worlds and Satan. And now we're going to see his authority over sin. God, and and he proves it to us, which is what I love about this text. God, I I pray uh, for everyone here, including myself, that, that we are strengthened by the authority of Jesus. God, and for those that do not have faith in Jesus, I pray that they see Jesus' authority on display this morning, that he clearly is the only one who has authority over sin. God, God, reveal this or show this to it. Make it known to us through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start out says, in getting into a boat, he crosses over, he comes to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So let, let's pick this up and let's pack, unpack this. We see once again this theme of Jesus, he's getting into a boat. And going to the other side of the sea, as I said last week, he must be Minnesotan because he's constantly getting in a boat and going all over. Something I know well of growing up. It says that he goes to his own city. Now, we need to be clear of of where this is. Um, This is not Nazareth, right? Nazareth is not on the Sea of Galilee. So he's going to one of two places. It's either Capernaum or Galilee. Most scholars agree here that this takes place in Capernaum. He's been kind of doing ministry out of there. So that is our setting for this morning. And it says in verse 2 that some people come to Jesus and they bring him a paralytic. Now, Matthew doesn't get much into the details here. We actually see from the other synoptic gospels, which are Mark and Luke, that they bring the paralytic and they actually bring him up on the roof and they open the roof tiles and they lower this guy down in front of Jesus as he's kind of teaching. Matthew doesn't tell us that. And it's actually very typical if you read Matthew's gospel. He actually oftentimes omits a lot of details and shortens accounts. 
And that's simply what's going on here. It's the same account that we see in Mark and Luke. But I do think that Matthew is referencing something extraordinary going on here. Uh, he doesn't say it directly, but I, but I think he's, he's hinting at it. Um, and it says at the end of verse 2 that when Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic, he said to him, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now Jesus, he sees the faith of the paralytic, or the friends, or both. We don't know whose idea this is, but someone is the instigator saying, I need to go to Jesus, the paralytic, or the friends are saying, you need to go to Jesus. He's the guy that can heal you. He's the guy. We've heard about him. He's doing some amazing stuff. You got to go see this Jesus guy, and we're going to make it happen. We're going to even lower you down through the roof. Amazing faith that these people have. They get the power of Jesus. They, they know who he is, and they act on faith. They trust that Jesus indeed has the power to heal his friend. However, Jesus' response here is very, very confusing. You're lowering your friend down, right, to get healed, and Jesus looks at the guy, and what does he say? He doesn't say, be healed. He says your sins are forgiven. I imagine everyone sitting in there are, are going, what, Jesus? What are you talking about? Your sins are forgiven. What are you doing? Everyone probably had a reaction like that. There's quite a reaction. We see in verse 3, amongst the religious leaders, Matthew captures their uh, reaction. It says, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So they say to themselves, they don't say it out loud, they're thinking this man is committing blasphemy. We need to understand what blasphemy is to understand what they're saying. So, so blasphemy is typically taking the Lord's name in vain. It's using it in a derogatory, disrespectful way. It's using God's name in an improper manner. And according to the Old Testament, it's that you can actually be killed for, for blasphemy. What has Jesus done here that's blasphemy? Nothing. Essentially. But at least initially when we take first glance. There's a couple of things going on here that I think we need to understand. The, the scribes are saying Jesus has blasphemed first because Jesus is claiming to forgive a man's sin. And the scribes' understanding, they know their Old Testament. They're experts in the Old Testament law. They think Jesus has erred in two major ways here. First, only God has the power to forgive sin. This idea is found throughout the whole Old Testament. Actually, the entire Old Testament system is built around the hope that God alone can forgive sin. We, we see this in the Psalms. We see it all over Scripture. Psalm 79.9 says this. This is a, the hymn book of ancient Israel. They're crying out in this, in this song, essentially, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake or for your glory, God. So they're having an issue here because only God can forgive sin. Their second issue is God requires a sacrifice to forgive sin. People can't just say your sin is forgiven. In the Old Testament system, they had an entire sacrificial system that God set up to forgive and deal with sin. 
And this system required the sacrifice, oftentimes, of an animal, pouring out his blood, doing specific things with it. And only a priest was able to do this in a certain way. An example of this is Leviticus 4, 1 through 8. And I won't read the whole thing. Don't, don't worry. Uh, but it, it, this is Moses speaking. He says this, speaking to the people of Israel, saying, if anyone sins unintentionally... And any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any of them. And if it's an anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then they shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bowl from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. And it talks about bringing the bowl into the meeting place and, and uh, laying your hand on it and killing it and, and, and taking the blood and sprinkling it in certain places seven times in the sanctuary and then, and then bringing it in and doing more sprinkling. And, and it's this whole elaborate thing that they had to do to be forgiven sin. So Jesus here, in the opinion of the scribes, they're saying, okay, you're not God, you're not a priest, and you haven't sacrificed an animal. You don't have the authority, Jesus, to forgive sins. You haven't done the right things. You're not a priest. You're not from the line of Aaron. So it is a question here. The scribes are questioning Jesus' authority to forgive sins. He, he can't, in their mind. How can he do that? I love this in, in verse 4. Okay? So they're thinking this. They're thinking this. They're not saying it out loud. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your heart? So imagine you're thinking something bad about a person. Okay? You're thinking something. And then that person looks at you and tells you what you're thinking. That's kind of a, an interesting moment. That's what's going on here. They're, they're thinking it. Evil thoughts, probably thoughts to potentially kill Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus is killed for blasphemy. They're thinking about getting rid of him. So then Jesus asks them a question for which he's going to use as a jumping off point. So he reads their mind, he responds to their thoughts, and then he says in verse 5. So he's looking now at the scribes. He says to them, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? What do you think is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk? What do you think? Anyone can say that, right? I can say, Jonathan, your sins are forgiven. And there's a lot of them. I'm just, I, I'm, just, I'm just joking, right? But there's no way to prove or disprove that statement. I can tell anyone your sins are forgiven. You can't prove or disprove I'm wrong or right. However, who here has seen someone go up to a paralyzed person and say, rise and walk? I haven't either. That, that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> right? God has to be working you. That takes a miracle. Paralyzed people don't just rise up and start walking unless something amazing is going on and God is working in you. Now Jesus is going to put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. And I, I love Jesus. He's my, my kind of guy. This would have just... I think he's probably laughing a little bit in his mind here as he's doing this. But he's going to prove the scribes wrong and in so doing, reveal who he truly is. So you have the scribes, say, thinking in their minds, this guy's committing blasphemy. He responds to their thoughts and tells them, well, what's easier, to say rise and walk or to forgive sins? Then it says in verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
Let's do some unpacking here for a bit. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Let's start there, because this, this is important. What is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? And in one sense, the Son of Man is one born of Adam. Adam's name in Hebrew means man. It is one born of man. It is a, it is a human being. It literally means to be human. So Jesus, in some ways, is linking himself with humanity. He is a son of man. He was born of Mary. And this is true in the incarnation. Jesus, the son of God, the eternal son, God, takes on human flesh. Adding humanity to his divinity in the incarnation is the son of man. However, it means much more than that. If you read throughout Scripture, there is this messianic title of the Son of Man. You see it all throughout Scripture. Ben read a section of that earlier, of the Son of Man is the Messiah. I'm going to go back to it briefly. It says this, I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now, Scripture is amazing. You have Daniel in the Babylonian exile. He has this vision of one like a son of man. He's not quite a son of man, but he's like a son of man. And Jesus is claiming to be this messianic person. This promised Messiah, this promised Son of Man, who we see is given all dominion belongs to him. All glory belongs to him. All people in the kingdoms of the world belong to him, and they should serve him. Jesus is saying, I am that Son of Man. He's been giving an everlasting dominion and power and authority over all things. And here he's claiming this power even includes forgiving sins as I see fit to do so. I am the Son of Man, he says, and I can do whatever I please. And he says, you want proof of that. You want me to prove that I have authority, scribes. You want proof that I can do it. Now this whole time he's been looking at the scribes and now he looks over at the paralyzed man and he says, get up and walk. What happens? The simplest sentence in Greek you can possibly put together and he rose and went home. He rose and went home. A paralyzed man who hasn't walked in years rose and went home. Muscles, there's no muscles on those legs. They magically appear. Muscles come out of nowhere. Bones that aren't strong enough to support people instantly become stronger. Tendons strengthen. Nerves that don't work begin to work. And this man gets up and goes home. I imagine maybe he skipped a little bit. Maybe he ran. And Jesus is saying, you want proof? He's leaving the building. There's your proof that I have the authority to give sins. He got up and he went home. There's your proof. 
Verse 8 says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. You bet they were. You bet they were. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Everyone in the crowd, they saw it and they were stricken with fear, the fear of the Lord, and they glorified God because Son of Man had been given all authority. Someone, God came and dwelt among us. And he has all authority. And a proper response to that is when you learn about who Jesus is, when you, when you learn about how, how sinful you are, is a fear of the Lord. It should drive us to a reverent awe of God that leads us to glorify him. That is a proper response, and that is the response from the crowd. So what does this matter to us as a people, as a church, as a congregation? Well, there's a few things we have to take away from this and, and understand. Number one is obvious. Jesus has the power to forgive sin, which is our greatest enemy. Jesus used the miracle of healing a paralyzed man to prove his power. Though the scribes, they were correct in many ways. They didn't just didn't understand who Jesus was. A sacrifice must be made to pay for sin because of the cost of sin. A sacrifice must be made by a priest, and it must include death. Scripture says the cost or the wage of sin is death. That, that's why the sacrifice of the animals. Blood must be poured out. Death must be paid to pay the wage of sin. Later on, Jesus proved this is true, that he's paid the penalty for sin. And he simply didn't raise a paralyzed man. But rather, he himself was raised. See, Jesus is our great high priest, and he is our great sacrifice all wrapped into one in the incarnation. That's what the cross is all about. When Jesus went to the cross, he is the sacrifice for our sin. In the Old Testament, the people had to sacrifice an animal over and over and over and over again. And it clearly was communicating that the shedding of the blood of an animal wasn't sufficient to atone for our sins. It didn't work. The Old Testament priesthood wasn't sufficient. It didn't work. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament are pointing to screaming that we need a greater sacrifice, a better sacrifice, and a better priesthood. A sacrifice sufficient for our sin. And Jesus is that greater sacrifice. He's the greater priest. And he shed his own blood on the cross to atone for our sins. And as the great hymn says, not in part, but in whole. Completely. Totally. In its entirety. All of your sin. And when Jesus was ra raised the paralytic and told him to pick up his mat and walk home, that was just a foretaste of what is to come. Jesus proved he has the power to forgive sin in that moment, but it's just a taste, a hint at what is to come. For Jesus himself, after he was killed, was buried in the ground, and three days later he rose again. He should have been a stinking, rotting, fly-ridden corpse, but death could not hold the Son of Man. It could not. Instead, proving that he had the power to overcome sin and death, he rose three days later, conquering it, overcoming the grave in victory. And as Ellis said in the video, we do have some good old problems. And Jesus has solved them. 
In this, Jesus proved definitively that he indeed has the power to forgive our sin because he overcame the greatest consequence of sin, which is death. The resurrection was therefore the ultimate proof that Jesus does have the power to forgive sin fully and in its entirety by the shedding of his blood, his death, and his resurrection. Our second takeaway is this. Not only did he do that, but he's willing to forgive our sins through faith. He's fully and wholly willing to forgive us through faith. The text, the Son of Man, Jesus, declares to the world that not only does he have the power to forgive sin, but he wants to do it. The text tells us that the paralyzed man and his friends, they bring their friend to Jesus, and Jesus responds to their faith. He responds to their faith by telling the man their sins are forgiven and then raising him up. This is an image of the gospel. We too can experience that forgiveness of sin and be raised up. When you die to yourself and choose to follow Jesus, putting your faith in him, you too are raised up. When you come to Jesus in faith, you will be raised and not experience death just as Jesus didn't experience death. You too will experience resurrection, just as Jesus experienced resurrection. You, you won't experience it because you deserved it. You won't experience because of your own power. You won't experience because of what you did. But you will experience because of the power of Jesus, the Son of Man, who chooses to forgive you. Who chooses to do it because he loves you. It's all Jesus. Nothing to do with you. He does it for you. Thirdly, lastly, understanding this should lead to a fear of the Lord. That should be our response to Jesus. It's a proper response. How did the crowd respond to Jesus? They had a reverent fear, an awe of God. Our proper response to Jesus, the perfect Son, who forgives our sin, bestowing forgiveness on us, despite not deserving it, should be a reverent awe of God. And I believe one of the main problems in the church in the West is that we have lost our fear of the Lord. We have lost that reverent awe and we take the shed blood of Christ, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for granted because we hear about it so much that it's just something that happened and of course I'm fully forgiven and, and fully free. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. The Son of God had to die. That's how serious sin is. And he did it for you. I pray that gives us a sense of awe. The Holy Son of God dealt with our greatest problem, and he did not have to. He didn't have to, but he did it out of love for you, in, in spite of you. It's how bad our situation is. That is how good God is. And the, the, I love the Reformation theology. I love to read the Reformers. For hundreds of years, the church had kind of lost the gospel and they rediscovered it. And people were so in awe 
that, that, that they were forgiven by God. That's all they could write about, talk about, speak about. You read some of the books of the Reformers, they're just like, I can't believe that this is true. But it's, it is almost unbelievable, but it is true. And we should not take it for granted. God loves you and forgives you in Jesus' shed blood. And not only that, he's proven it to be true by raising the paralytic and by he himself rising from the grave. He's given you confidence, trusting in Jesus. You know it's true. You know it's true. Who else has risen from the grave? No one else but Jesus. Be in awe. Be in fear of the Lord. My hope this morning is that as we leave this place, Christian, is that you are struck by that awe. You are struck by that fear of the Lord. You are in awe of Jesus. And that you have that hope, that certainty, that you are forgiven in the resurrection. It is certain. And what a beautiful place to be, to rest in that certainty of Jesus. And it's proven it to you. For those of you that do not have faith in Christ this morning, I hope that you see that Jesus alone can forgive your sins. He is the only one that's proven it. He proved it over and over and over. He continues to prove it over and over and over through change lies within his bride, the church. He rose from the dead. There is no other way to be forgiven sins. If you are not in Christ through faith, you are not forgiven. You are not. But, Jesus offers it to you freely. All you have to do is be like the paralytic. Come to him in faith and you will be forgiven and you too will be raised up. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I am so in awe of Jesus. I pray we are in awe of Jesus. God, the love you have for us. We don't deserve any of it. We have messed things up. We sin every day. We make mistakes. As Ellis said, we got some good old problems. God, but you love us. You forgive us. You make a way for us to be right with you through faith in Jesus. And not only that, you give us full confidence in the resurrection because you raised him up after three days in the grave for death could not hold him. And the raising of the paralytic was just a foretaste of that to come. God, you are so good to us. Help us to understand that and to rest in your goodness and in the security of the shed blood of Jesus, our great high priest and great sacrifice. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.